0: Say to God, how awesome are your deeds. So great is your power that your enemies come cringing to you. All the earth worships you and sings praises to you. They sing praises to your name. Selah. Come and see what God has done. He is awesome in his deeds towards the children of men. He turned the sea into dry land. They passed through the river on foot. There did we rejoice in him who rules by his might forever whose eyes keep watch on the nations. Let not the rebellious exalt themselves. Selah. Bless our God, O peoples. Let the sound of his praise be heard. Who has kept our soul among the living and has not let our feet slip? For you, O God, have tested us. You have tried us as silver is tried. You brought us into the net. You laid a crushing burden on our backs. You let men ride over our heads. We went through fire and through water. Yet you have brought us out to a place of abundance. I will come into your house with burnt offerings. I will perform my vows to you, that which my lips uttered, and my mouth promised when I was in trouble. I will offer to you burnt offerings of fatted animals with the smoke of the sacrifice of rams. I will make an offering of bulls and goats. Selah. Come and hear all you who fear God, and I will tell what he has done for my soul. I cried to him with my mouth, and high praise was on my tongue. If I had cherished the iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. But truly, God has listened. He has attended to the voice of my prayer. Blessed be God, because he has not rejected my prayer or removed his steadfast love from me. This is the word of the Lord. You may have a seat. Join me in prayer.
1: Our God in heaven, we come before you not on the basis of our deeds or our goodness, but we approach your throne of grace solely on the grounds of what Christ has done and has been for us. And we pray as your word comes to us that you would bring forth life, bring clarity and light in our minds, and bring life and heat in our hearts. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would speak, that you would apply, that you would convict, and that you would encourage all as you see fit in your wisdom. And we pray in the name of Christ. Amen. The scriptures are full of commands. Of course, that's not all that we find in the Bible. We find much more than commands, but you can't deny that there are many commands throughout Scripture, Old Testament, New Testament, imperatives to do many things. Uh, But at the height of them, or if you were going to summarize them, you might summarize them as love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, or another reasonable summary of so many that would capture so many of the commands of Scripture would be the command to worship God now some of us in the room uh, we love commands we love the simplicity just tell me what to do and I'll do it and uh, others of us in the room we we for whatever reason we bristle at the commands um, but I think common to all of us wherever you fall on that spectrum um, Find this one at times difficult to obey, to, from your heart, feel passionate about God and worship him as he's worthy of. Of course, if you're a Christian and you've been given a new heart by God, there are times when you feel that, when you experience that, and it's not hard, it's easy, but along the course of the Christian life, there are many times where it may be hard. We feel as we come maybe to a Lord's Day gathering or as we open up our Bibles uh, in the mornings, as we come to God uh, wanting to meet with him, we find, um, I know that I'm supposed to praise him, but how do I move my heart? How do I rouse this sluggishness, I feel, uh, to worship him as he's worthy of? Well, one answer given in the scriptures, which we're going to see out of Psalm 66 today, is this. Let the redemptive deeds of God fuel your worship. Psalm 66, the whole psalm is a call to worship. We begin every Lord's Day gathering as we did today with Psalm 46. We begin with a call to worship. There are biblical reasons, historical reasons, theological reasons to begin a Lord's Day gathering with a call to worship, but there are also really practical reasons. And there are practical reasons because we are coming out of Uh, the mundane. We're coming out of laundry and dishes and all the things that uh, were evoked in my mind when we were in Ecclesiastes of you just do these things over and over again. There's no end point. They're mundane. They're ordinary. We're being called out of those things into something that goes above the mundane, that's extra mundane, uh, that's not ordinary. It's even otherworldly, what we're being called to on the Lord's Day. The psalmist understood the dilemma of being called into something otherworldly while being firmly planted in this world. In our psalm, there are four sections. You might have noticed them as Raymond went through. As he noted the selahs, three selahs makes four sections. And in those four sections, if you were going to summarize them in just a few words, basically the first one is worship as a command, as an imperative. And then after the first selah, come and see. And then another Selah, and then the third section, again, you could maybe summarize. It's a command to worship. It has to do with worship. And then the final section, again, starts with come and hear. So I think the psalmist understood the kinds of things that I feel, I imagine all of us feel at times, as we come to the scriptures, maybe in personal devotions, or as we come to Lord's Day gatherings, that my heart needs help. The psalmist felt that. And as we go through Psalm 66, I'll just warn you up front, I'm not going to go strictly block by block. I'm going to trace some themes, uh, and we'll move around the psalm a little bit, not strictly in order. So just a warning as we get, get into it. But let's start with this idea from Psalm 111, that great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. So let's study together and let's see that the redemptive deeds of God fuel our worship. So, the first place we're going to go, our first point, and there are going to be six points. I'm not going to lay them out uh, before we start, but you'll see them as we go through, and I'll note them. Our first point is that God's deeds call us to worship. God's deeds call us to worship. Let's read again verses 1 through 4, Psalm 66. Shout for joy to God, all the earth. Sing the glory of his name. Give to him glorious praise. Say to God, how awesome are your deeds. So great is your power that your enemies come cringing to you. All the earth worships you and sings praises to you. They sing praises to your name. And we might rightfully stop there at times again and say, how? How am I to do that? I'm distracted. I'm sinful. I'm worried about the argument I had last night. I'm worried about the meeting I have in two hours. And the psalmist responds with verse 5. Come and see what God has done. He is awesome in his deeds toward the children of man. So the psalmist responds by pointing us to his deeds, which are awesome, and his power, which is great. God's attributes are reflected in the deeds that he performs. And those attributes call us as his people to worship him. The deeds help us to see him as he is, and he is the object of our faith and our worship. So the Reformed understanding of God's deeds has traditionally grouped them in three categories. And I find these categories helpful. Creation, providence, and redemption as the three categories of God's deeds. And the first two are the canvas upon which the third is painted. So God's deeds of creation and of providence are the stage upon which the drama of God's deeds of redemption is performed. And all of them call us to worship him. And you can see this as you go through the Psalms. There are Psalms that focus on God's work as creator. Like Psalm 8, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Or Psalm 104, highlighting his providence, You water the mountains. You cause the grass to grow for the livestock. Psalm 66 is one that highlights God's deeds of redemption, how he has rescued helpless sinners. We saw here that the the psalmist, as he interprets God's deeds of redemption, that he focuses in on God's power. The God of the Bible has revealed himself as El Shaddai, as God Almighty. He is omnipotent. He possesses all power. Nothing can frustrate him. Nothing's too hard for him. And he can do and does all that he pleases. Well, the psalmist's call to us to worship God is based on his deeds, which display his power. So the goal of your personal devotion time or your family worship time or your small group gathering or the Lord's Day gathering is to come and see and come and hear, and then to meditate, and then for that to flow out into worship. The sermon, the content, even the text of the Bible, they are not ends in themselves. They are meant to drive us to a response, a response of worship. Sam Storm says that the ultimate goal of theology isn't knowledge, but worship. Theology without doxology, Doxology being the response of praise. Theology without doxology is idolatry. The only theology worth studying is a theology that can be sung. So God's deeds call us to worship. And not only his deeds generally, but also his deeds specifically with times and dates and places and events. Which brings us to our second point, that God's specific deeds for his people fuel our worship. God's specific deeds for his people fuel our worship. Look back at verse 5 with me. Come and see what God has done. He is awesome in his deeds toward the children of man. And one could stop there and respond, what deeds? What deeds do you have in mind? Either I didn't grow up in the church. I haven't read the Bible. I'm new to Christianity. I don't know what deeds you're talking about. Or I'm a Christian. I've been a Christian a long time. But... um, I'm forgetful, I'm depressed, I'm, my spiritual vision is clouded, I need reminders, I need help. What deeds are you talking about? Verse 6, he turned the sea into dry land. They passed through the river on foot. There did we rejoice in him. So specificity helps us to worship. The details of God's redemptive acts help us to remember, and they move us. The Psalms... As one example, the Psalms return again and again to the drama of the people of Israel being led out of Egypt through the Red Sea to inspire their worship. The Psalms being God's songbook, again and again you find, as I studied, I found psalm after psalm after psalm that used this imagery of the exodus out of Egypt through the Red Sea to inspire worship and to inspire song in God's people. So let's turn, actually, to Exodus 14, turn there with me, where we read about the Red Sea crossing. We'll return to this text again throughout the sermon. And just as a setup, God has decimated Egypt, decimated their land, um, humbled Pharaoh finally with the 10th plague shown himself superior to all the gods of Egypt, and finally brought Pharaoh and all of Egypt to their knees by taking their firstborn sons. The people of Israel flee, and Pharaoh pursues, and they are um, situated between the Red Sea on one side and God, or, uh, Pharaoh's army with 600 chariots on the other. Let's read... Exodus 14, verses 13 and 14. Moses said to the people, fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. So Moses stretches out his staff. God brings a strong east wind all night. He creates dry ground in the midst of two walls of water, and the people walk through Pharaoh pursues, Moses stretches out his hand again, and God brings the water back upon the Egyptians. The text here, Psalm 66, also mentioned that the people passed through the river. Probably a reference to uh, later when God led the people of Israel by the hand of Joshua through the Jordan River. And one evidence of the power of the Red Sea crossing in the imagination of the people of Israel is that when God wanted to exalt Joshua after Moses is dead and he has a new leader on a new task to conquer the promised land, he connects Joshua as a leader to that Red Sea crossing by creating a, a similar event where God piled up the waters of the Jordan River upstream so that the people might pass through on dry ground. Such was the power of this image of the parted waters. God led his people as a shepherd leading a flock. His fatherly love and his care, combined with his unbounded power, came together to save his people. This is the type of, the thing, type of thing that the psalmist wants us to come and see, that he's calling us in to come and see the shepherding care Of God for his people. So the question for us that I ask to you is, are you coming? And as you come, are you seeing? Are you seeing God in his work reflecting his fatherly heart, shepherding the people of God? When you are you coming daily to the scriptures and to commune with God? Are you making space in the midst of a busy life to commune with God? and come not just to read, but to be driven, to meditate, and to worship. Are you coming on the Lord's Day? Clearly, you've come today, if you're here. But are you making it a priority to come again and again, and coming to come and see, and to come and hear, that you might um, uh, understand and grasp and be moved by more fully uh, God's deeds? and his salvation for his people. God's specific deeds for his people fuel our worship. They do this for us not only as a group, as we talk about a Red Sea crossing, God saving his people as a a nation or as a group, but God does this for each one of us individually. And those individual acts that God does also fuel our worship for each one of his people, which brings us to the third point. God's deeds for each of us fuel our worship. If we turn back to Psalm 66, you can keep your thumb or a pen or something in um, Exodus 14. Back in Psalm 66, if we focus on that last section now, verses 16 to 20, Psalmist says, come and hear all you who fear God. And I will tell you what he's done for my soul. I cried to him with my mouth, and high praise was on my tongue. If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. But truly, God has listened. He has attended to the voice of my prayer. Blessed be God, because he's not rejected my prayer or removed his steadfast love from me. So the psalmist calls, come and hear. Note the change in the audience, whereas in verse one, the call went out to all the earth. In verse eight, the call went out to the peoples. Now in verse 16, he's, he's honing in on the church. He wants the church to come and see what God has done for him individually, personally, and for that to drive everyone to worship God with him. There's a time when we rejoice in our services, In our worship, individually and corporately, in John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. There's a time to worship God for that. And then there's a time also to feel (coughs) in our hearts and connect with Galatians 2.20. Christ loved me and gave himself for me. Both are prompts for worship, God's work, big picture, broad strokes, and God's granular work with each one of us, with the details. His deeds include his great acts of judgment and salvation, like the ark through the flood, like the people through the Red Sea and then the Red Sea replaced, and also our personal testimonies. Each one of us here who are in Christ has been transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light from slavery to sin and Satan to freedom in Christ, from the city of destruction and now on our way, and we will certainly arrive at the celestial city. The details of how that came to be, that conversation, that prayer, that relationship, that hobby that led to spending time with somebody, all of those details, those strings of events, convince us again and again that our God, the one we worship is a supernatural God whose power has no limits and who exerts that power to part the Red Sea and also to save each one of us. So I encourage you, share your testimony with one another. Ask others for theirs. You can do it, you can start after the, the service today when we, after the benediction In this room or at lunch, to ask people, what has God done in your life? What has God done this week where you have seen his power and his love produced in your life or brought to bear on your life? And as you do it, give glory to the person of God. Marvel at him in his character behind the deeds and the circumstances to marvel at him as the object of our worship. Well, those specific personal deeds that we will share with one another are fuel for our worship. And we focus up to this point on God's deeds of salvation on three different levels. But the Christian life, as we know, is not a monotonic, ever-increasing, smooth and upward rise to glory. No, our salvation does not exclude suffering, and that's our, first, our, our fourth point, is that Our salvation does not exclude suffering. And you saw it in the text. You saw it in the text already. Let's read again in verses 10 to 12. For you, O God, have tested us. You've tried us as silver is tried. You brought us into the net. You laid a crushing burden on our backs. You let men ride over our heads. We went through fire and through water. Yet you have brought us out to a place of abundance. The psalmist says you've tested us. You've tried us. You've ensnared us. You've crushed us. You brought us through fire and through water. Fire and water, two grand pictures of judgment and trial in the scriptures. God brings his people through them, not around the trial. We can't go over it. We can't go under it. No, we have to go through it. If you're a children's book fan, you're thinking of going on a bear hunt, I'm sure. But that's the Christian life. We cannot escape these trials. God brings us through them. We sang of this earlier, Isaiah 43 2, which we sang, How Firm a Foundation. Suffering, trouble, and trial preempt salvation. And our final salvation, we are still waiting for. We are still waiting for Christ to come back and get us and gather us together and take us into his eternal kingdom to be with him in heaven. We're still waiting for that. And until then, we individually and as a group will suffer. There's a pattern in the scriptures. The Jordan crossing followed 40 years of suffering in the wilderness. The Exodus followed 400 years in a land that was not their own for the Israelites. Many of them spent in unbearable slavery. Joseph's exaltation, which led to the people being drawn to Egypt, that followed years of personal suffering as he moved through the dungeons of Egypt. So with Israel, so it is with Christ. His state of exaltation follows his state of humiliation. And so it is with us, his church. The cross precedes the crown. And we opened up by talking about God's power Romans 1.16 says that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. That gospel and that gospel power goes out now through the preaching of the gospel, which the scriptures itself acknowledge as folly in the eyes of the world, and through the joyful, persistent suffering of God's people. But as as we suffer, we remember at least two things. God says that his power is made perfect in weakness. And secondly, God often works behind the scenes, and he often does his most wonderful work through apparent defeats. All these grand deeds of salvation that we've seen from um, God's deeds generally, God's deeds for his people as a whole, God's specific deeds for each one of us, bringing us through fire and water and trial. All of these are not merely events. They're not merely events that we might read about in a history book or read about in the newspaper, such and such happened. And we sort of learn them and absorb the knowledge and then we go along our way. No, but these are deeds, deeds done by someone. There is a person behind the deeds performing them and because there is a person, because there is a deed doer, these deeds demand a response. Which leads to our fifth point that God's deeds evoke a response from his enemies. God's deeds evoke a response from his enemies. In verse three in our text, the second half of that verse, the psalmist instructs us to say to God, So great is your power that your enemies come cringing. To you, this is a slavish sort of fear at the power of God, at His justice and His holiness. They come. I have an image of them sort of crawling on the ground, or at least bowed down. This is not joyful, willing worship. This is subjugation, that they come cringing to God. And interestingly, this is the only specific mental picture in that first. Um, First section, before that first Selah, the calls to worship, and we're given one and only one mental picture to start us off, and that is of God's enemies coming, cringing into his presence. And I wonder why. I think maybe, maybe to start us off in, our, in this call to worship, this is who we fear. This is who we fear as God's people, those who exalt themselves against God who threaten to ridicule, persecute, um, and put us down as God's people, oppress God's people. This is who we are tempted to fear. But the psalmist shows us these enemies, though they exalt themselves now, they come crawling to our God. Not willingly, not joyfully, but subdued by his great power. In the, content of, in, the, or in the context of our recurring illustration, in Exodus 14, we see an echo of this. We see an illustration of this. Look at Exodus 14, 27. It says, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea, including Pharaoh. Um, despite what the Prince of Egypt shows of Pharaoh escaping the, the waters, brought back and shaking his fist, uh, we don't see any evidence of that in the scriptures says not one of them was left, who knows, but the Lord threw the Egyptians, Pharaoh who had shrugged at at the call from God's prophet Moses and Aaron, now God throws him into the midst of the sea along with his army. Verse 28, not one of them remained. And finally, verse 30, Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. And so Psalm 66 says, let not the rebellious exalt themselves. This is what happens to those who raise themselves up against God's power. I see a twofold application of this truth, that God's deeds evoke this kind of response from his enemies. The first aspect, for God's people, don't fear God's enemies. Like we heard from Chuck from Psalm 2 two weeks ago, when the kings of this earth raise themselves and exalt themselves against God, God laughs at them. He knows who his king is and where he's put him on Mount Zion. So do not fear God's enemies. And Jesus himself tells us that in Luke twelve four, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body, And after that, they have nothing more that they can do. Don't fear them. But there's a second point of application here, too. If you are not in Christ, if you have not cast yourself on the grace of God in Christ, this is your fate. And the appropriate response before God is fear. But. Christ has also promised that all who come to him, he will never cast out. So the call today is if that's you or you're not sure if it's you, give yourself no rest till you've resolved that. So come to Christ today. These deeds not only provoke God's enemies to a slavish, cringing fear, but they also provoke God's people to respond. And that's our sixth point, our final point. God's deeds demand a response from his people. God's deeds demand a response from his people. There's a response called for from those who fear God. And this is not the sort of cringing, slavish fear that we saw in our last point in verse 3. No, this is, to use Ryan's definition when he preached on the fear of God out of Ecclesiastes 8 a few weeks ago, this is having one's soul possessed by the greatness and the goodness of God in Christ, which he said has two aspects. The first is a sense of fear and of dread at who God is in his inflexible justice, in his holiness that's a consuming fire. Even if you recognize embracing Romans 8.1, that that condemnation, that holiness, that justice is not coming for you. Even just recognizing that that is who God is can provoke a sense of fear and of dread that is not inappropriate, even for the Christian. But what differentiates then, the big differentiator between those of God's enemies, those of God's people, in the fear of God is the second aspect, which is a veneration, or a love that attracts one to follow Christ. Like Peter, when he was confronted with the divinity of his friend Jesus and was trembling at understanding that this is God Almighty in front of me, he was attracted to follow him and later said, where else can we go? Where else could we go but to follow you? So this is the type of fear of God that God's people have. And they are called here by the psalmist to shout, praise, sing, say, worship, bless our God. To call to get noisy, to be loud. Verse 8 says, let the sound of his praise be heard. Not just by the person sitting next to you as we sing, but across the room and out the doors. Let the sound of his praise be heard. Let it go out into our communities and out into the world. For the psalmist, this also included burnt offerings and vows in verses 13 to 15. Without going deeply there, one could go very deep. But let's just say this for now. The psalmist here and David in Psalm 69 came with this idea. I will praise the name of God with a song. I will magnify him with thanksgiving. This will please the Lord more than an ox or a bull with horns and hooves. I don't think that statement is to disparage the bringing of burnt offerings. Of course, that was that was prescribed by God. Those were God's ideas, but always the 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 main um, driver there, the main purpose, was not what was done with the hands and killing an animal and putting it on an altar, but what was coming out from the heart. That a song, thanksgiving in the heart, being filled with thoughts of substitution and atonement, God's holiness and God's mercy, were what drove the worship that pleased God. That was the true aroma that came up to him in a pleasing way. And so for us, we are driven to God's mercy and driven to worship. One more time, let's go to Exodus 14. When the Israelites saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore, Exodus 14, 31, Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. So they saw his power, they feared him, they believed, and then they sang. Exodus 15 goes into the song of Moses, which apparently he composed on the spot, inspired by the Holy Spirit. We won't read the whole thing, but maybe later this afternoon it'd be a great exercise. It's a wonderful song of praise for what God has done and Moses' interpretation of it to some degree. Let's just read verses 1 and 13. Exodus 15:1. Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. In verse 13, you have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You've guided them by your strength to your holy abode. Moses was... Seeing in the great deeds God had done, a blowing wind, movement of water, drying of ground, he was seeing behind that God's steadfast love and his strength. So that too for us is to look at his deeds, see him behind it, and worship him. And then verse 20, it gets fun. Even more fun. Miriam the prophetess, Exodus 15-20, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing. So the scene, the scene after the final plague, the Passover scene, Moses, or, uh, Pharaoh rose up in the night and realized his firstborn son was dead, and so too throughout Egypt. It says a great cry went up in the middle of the night, in the darkness, and then he summoned Moses and Aaron and told them, get out, finally. And I just imagine that was a scene of chaos. Given, the, um, given the, the nature of Pharaoh's character and how this whole thing had played out, I imagine there was some urgency to pack up and get out before he changes his mind, right? And in this chaotic, hurried scene of packing up stuff, Miriam and all the women made sure that they grabbed their tambourines uh, on their way out. We're going to need those uh, as we go. (laughs) And I'm so glad that we had a tambourine here this morning. So thank you, Ellie. Well done. Uh, We're going to, again, come back to that. Um, They dance and they sing. We have a pattern in our Lord's Day worship. There's a pattern of a call goes out to worship and then we respond and sing. And then we confess our sin together and we are assured of our pardon and then we sing. And then we receive from the reading of God's word, the preaching of God's word. We see and taste and touch the elements a participation in the death of Christ and then we sing. There's a response that is driven who God is for us in Christ and what he's done the redemptive deeds of God call for songs of loudest praise the truth revealed in God's word about how he saved his people it demands the writing of songs the playing of instruments tambourines and singing at full volume Psalm 66 has shown us throughout its 20 verses that we are to be drawn into and brought to see the beautiful and powerful God who has saved us by his great deeds and be called and driven to worship him. And I think it's, um, it's safe to say that we have all the content that we need to provoke unending worship. There was one who passed through water and passed through fire for you. Jesus called his death on the cross a baptism. He was brought through the waters of judgment. He experienced the waters of judgment for you, to save you. Isaiah 33 asks, who among us can dwell with the consuming fire? Who among us can dwell with the everlasting burning? And the text answers, He who walks righteously and speaks uprightly. Christ took your eternal hellfire, that you might be brought through fire and not destroyed in the fire. Jude says that it was Jesus who saved a people out of Egypt. We see Moses... But when we put our spiritual glasses on, we see Jesus leading a people out of Egypt and we see ourselves among them. When Jesus met with Moses and Elijah on the Mount of Transfiguration, he spoke with them about his exodus. About his leaving of this world through his death and resurrection and his ascension. And when Jesus ascended on high, he didn't go alone. He led a host of captives in his train with all who place their faith in Christ among them. Jesus truly is the better, the true and better Moses. He led us out of a truer and deeper slavery, and he led us to a truer and more eternal promised land. The redemptive deeds of Christ are fuel for our worship as they zoom us in on who he is. So let's continue to worship him together, and let's pray. O Lord, all glory and honor is yours. We pray, make your redemptive deeds known throughout the whole earth, so that the force of your power may bring down your enemies and ours. Humble us, refine us by the afflictions that you send, that we may never stop praising your mercy and goodness, which which are shown in your beloved Son. Jesus Christ, our Redeemer. Amen.